0: Who you are defines how you build. This is Thought Leaders Revisited, a special summer 2020 edition of our Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders series. During this summer of uncertainty, we're inviting some of the most influential past ETL speakers to join us for a series of new conversations about innovation, leadership, and especially finding opportunities in the midst of a crisis. On this episode, we're joined by Adam Pizzoni, Adam is the co-founder of the enterprise social networking firm, Yammer, and is the founder and executive chairman of ABLE, a company that aims to help all schools move beyond the 20th century model of education. Welcome,
1: Adam. Thank you so much for being here.
2: It's good to be back.
0: So
1: let's dive in. There's a lot to talk about with U.S. education. Um, Before we get into ABLE, paint a picture for us of U.S. public education, What's the state today? And how is inequity manifesting in the US education system?
2: Yeah, I mean, when I started ABLE five years ago, it it was because I believe there were inequities in the system that were resulting in students not having the same level of opportunity as as their peers. Uh, But in a lot of ways, having been at ABLE now uh, for five years and having seen the data uh, within districts across the country, it's in many ways radicalized me, uh, which to say, uh, it, it is hard to find a district that doesn't have pretty extreme inequities and I'm not saying something that the best leaders don't already know as well uh, in terms of how it's manifest I mean the way I look at it is imagine two students who who were identical in every way who had the same aptitude and the same potential and the same upbringing and all of that uh, entering sixth grade and, and you know they have eight semesters or whatever to go or or more and and uh, by no choice of those students there are decisions that are being made by their uh, guidance counselors, by their uh, uh, principals, by their district leaders, oftentimes unknowingly, that would so radically change the trajectory of those two identical students that one would go to Harvard and one would drop out. Uh, and the inequity piece is that th- those differences in, in decisions that are made for students, so I'll give you some examples, uh, tend to fall along demographic lines or socioeconomic lines. Um, they tend to fall along racial lines or gender lines or, uh, again, you know, socioeconomics. So, uh, and that's what seems unfair. It's not that every student would do equally well or poorly in in a school. It's that the only way to explain some of the differences that we see in schools across the country uh, is is these dividing lines on things like race and gender. Uh, I'll give you just one example that I might have given actually last time, but I, I think is a, a an informative one. Uh, and and I, then I'll switch a little bit just to the state of education. But so there was a a school within a district we were working on, working with. And uh, before we had gotten to them, they had seen a pretty wide uh, uh, achievement gap and their belief was, well, part of the problem is that, you know, a lot of students don't understand the value of school. They don't understand uh, what the purpose of all this is. So if we we can make school more relevant to their jobs in the future, then they would be more likely to apply themselves. And so they created what are called uh, linked learning pathways or career pathways. They created two of them. One was, I think, tech, one was health. Um, and those pathways came with additional requirements for those students. So seventh graders or rather ninth graders were coming into high school and guidance counselors were looking at these transcripts and saying some of these students are, are too far behind to take the required remediation courses or you know, retake courses or support courses and still take the required courses for these pathways. So they took this group of students, of which was a double digit percentage of the, st- the, the student body, and they just put them in like a third pathway that didn't have a name. Well, all of those students, a large percentage of those students ended up failing out because the resources of the school weren't oriented towards that pathway. Mm-hmm. They were oriented towards these other pathways. So that that was an extreme example, maybe, but it's one example where we see over and over that even the programs designed to help students of color or, or students of low socioeconomic status often hurt them because of the way they bifurcate the resources. So you asked the state of the education system. I mean, I, I think we are... In such a pivotal point where the education system all up is is deemed by everybody of all parties to be not working for all of our students and to be currently underfunded or rather uh, you know given the money that we're putting in we don't feel like we're getting the value out and the pandemic is really uh, showing how important the educational institution is in our country beyond what we thought you know people tend to think about education as curriculum assessment about teaching the skills students need. To, to learn, but I'll tell you that teaching content, teaching skills is not the number one or even the number two most important goal for most schools. Number one is safety uh, for every school. People are entrusting their children with a school and that means a lot of things uh, beyond just, um, you know, school shootings or something. I mean, schools feed millions of students a year that can't otherwise afford to eat. They provide mental health services to millions of students a year who otherwise uh, uh, wouldn't have those opportunities. That, that is such a large piece of what school is today. The number two part of school uh, isn't education either. It is helping the economy by making sure the parents can go to work. And, uh, you know, there's that's a, and schools are the largest employer in almost every city that they're in. And number three is educating students on on uh, on content they need to you know, be successful and the skills they need. Um, but what we're seeing here, I think, is a breaking point where we're going to see, I hope uh, some major changes coming in the next years. I think people didn't realize how important education, the education system was for a functioning economy and society. Um, but I think we as a country have to decide the kind of education system we want. So what I'm seeing is a coming breaking point. What I don't yet know is the direction we'll go. Uh, and specifically, you know, the, the, the way in which I think I was most radicalized is when I got into ABLE, I thought that what the problems were could be solved with policy or programs or funding Mm -hmm. or things like that. But what I came to believe after watching the last few decades of people trying to fix education through policy and program uh, and funding is that the problem with education is not the education system. It is actually, it's a cultural problem that we as a society have not decided that we want to educate all our students. And in fact, we uh, we have a individualistic society that That rationally believes that we should be fighting for our own children's best education, and we're in a bit of a almost a death spiral where uh, parents currently believe there's not enough good seats in good schools for for all kids, and so they're going to fight for their students to get the good schools and resources. By doing so, they are making the whole system worse, which is creating which is becoming a self fulfilling prophecy, making fewer good seats. Uh, And as long as we're on that spiral, then every time we introduce a new program or funding stream or whatever it ends up getting sort of twisted to benefit a smaller set of students. The things those parents are doing are rational. I don't think any of them are bad. or you know. Uh, uh, but I think this is the breaking point that we face in education. I think we're, we're really going to have to decide the kind of education system we want in the next couple of years as we come out of this.
1: Well, I appreciate you laying that out. And I think for our listeners out there, I think many of them are motivated to create change. And we have a saying at STVP at Um, the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. And certainly there are lots of opportunities in the education space. And I think what's so interesting about what you laid out is that it's not something you can take piecemeal to solve necessarily, that what you've identified as the interdependencies between education and almost every other major facet of how our economy and how our personal lives work. Um, So I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about What do we do about this? We've got this huge problem. What do we do now? Um, And so I want to turn to a clip from your 2018 talk um, where you lay out some the problem with something you call islands that are solutions to some of these 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 um, systemic issues.
2: People look at the education system and they say it's totally broken. It's so complex. It's not helping students and it's really hard to change. So I have all these ideas. I want project-based learning and competency-based, and I want social-emotional, but it's too hard to do in the old system. So what people do is say, I'm going to do it elsewhere. I'm going to go off and find an island, or I'm going to start my own school. I'm going to start my own private school or a charter school. I'm going to prove what's possible. Their belief is that if they can prove what's possible and that it's better, the world will change. And that is the misconception. That is one of the cardinal mistakes Of Silicon Valley. That's not how businesses or institutions or the world changes.
1: So I think what we hear about, especially in Silicon Valley, but really across the world, what we often hear about is these really novel, bold island solutions. So what's the alternative? Um, What else can we do if we want to do this?
0: Yeah,
2: and and just to clarify one thing, I'm not against islands. I think islands, as I I probably said in that talk, too, islands are a necessary component of change, and that we do need exemplars. We do need people to show what's possible. Uh, my point was, and I think the danger for entrepreneurs is that belief that the island is is all that is sufficient. And this is particularly true when you're dealing with institutions. I think that when you're dealing with the consumer space or things that are direct to consumer, it's a lot easier to make leaps or get people to, to make leaps. But when you're dealing with institutions or companies or B2B, it's a lot harder because as I said in that talk, you know, people buy the present, not the, the future in a lot of ways. So the challenge for an entrepreneur, the first thing is to decide, do you want to make an island or bridge? And they're both valuable endeavors. Um, But if you're looking at improving a system, one question you should ask is, are there already a lot of islands? And has that changed anything? And if there are and it hasn't, then it's possible that the problem is in islands, uh, that there aren't exemplars or or examples, Um, because a lot of times the system isn't changing, not because there aren't examples or the people within that system don't want to change or don't see the the future It's because they're stuck because the, you know, education itself is an incredibly complex uh, interdependent system that's held in dynamic tension. There's no one thread you can pull that magically fixes it. Uh, And and as I said earlier, you know, it's also held in place by people who have a very, very strong interest in keeping the system the way it is in a way that benefits uh, themselves. And so I, I think the lesson of if you want to to move towards institutional change or scale, uh, then the real challenge is to paint the picture of the island, to say, you know, to capture the imagination of your audience who wants to get to the island, but then through listening and empathy, say, I, but I understand where you are today. And so I'm going to help you take a step and then another step. And I'm going to paint the picture. And we're all going to celebrate where we're going, but also I'm going to recognize where you are. Uh, And that can only happen through deep empathy and listening. And it can only happen, by the way, by uh, aiming your tests, your experiments, your early customers, at the middle customers, not the early adopters, because you'll get the wrong feedback when you do that. And that leads you to sort of build an island. And the more entrenched a system, and and by the way, um, a lot of the easy problems have been solved uh, as far as digitizing or bringing things online. So we're left with a lot of really hard, much harder problems um and with those types of problems the difference between your early adopters and your your later adopters is massive and if you validate with early adopters you may not learn anything valuable you may not learn actually what the problems are what your late adopters will want to adopt or buy or the factors that that you know the reasons they make decisions uh so go build an island if you want to build an island there's nothing wrong with building islands uh, but don't be fooled into thinking the island is all that's necessary to get everyone to your island, uh, or to change the system. And if you want to change the system, you got to figure out how to to scaffold from those islands to those bridges.
1: So let's let's get a little bit more specific because I think our audience and myself are following you abstractly. Great, yeah. let's get someone from point A, you know, to B, to C, to Z, and then we eventually can get to Z and have this, you know. Wonderful vision of what a future state might look like. But talk us through maybe a specific example with Able. What does that look yeah. like? And what do you mean when you talk about the middle of the market?
2: Yeah. Uh, so with Able, you know, when I was doing my research for the company, I saw a lot of islands, as I mentioned there, it was a lot of people who are who doing really good and important work that were pro- providing, I think, me and others examples of where we think the system should go. There was a lot of private school or not, not a, there were certainly private charters and district schools that are doing amazing things. Um, but then when you looked at a large urban district, for example, or, or just say like, where are the majority of the students in this country? They're not in those progressive districts. They're in larger, you know, urban districts or, or in some cases rural districts, but Um, And when you looked at their set of problems, they understood that curriculum needed to improve, that we would love to teach social emotional learning. Like they had those beliefs, but they were kind of stuck in a lot of the operational complexity of of their school. Like every time uh, in this specific case, what I saw is when someone from the outside said, why don't schools teach social emotional learning? Why can't they just do that? You know, the way that a school principal or a superintendent receives that is, wait a minute, this is yet another program. I have... 50 programs. And how does this fit into that existing tapestry of policies and programs? Oh, and by the way, is this, is this in class? Is this separate? How does this impact my students who have special needs or you know, all these other factors? And so it's not that they didn't see or want that. It's that you had to go to them and say, I understand the operational complexity of what you're trying to do and where you're trying to go. So if I can simplify that operational complexity and help you Or another good example, actually, this may be even a better one as it relates to this conversation, um, this idea that we just need to introduce new things into schools. If you're a principal or superintendent looking at your system saying, my system is inequitable, then introducing a new program doesn't just make it equitable. And so you you also want to understand, what is it about my system that is inequitable? And, And if I were to introduce a new program, how would I do it in a way that doesn't just exacerbate that inequity? But that is not something a lot of entrepreneurs think about because they're thinking at probably a smaller scale or their own children. And they're like, this is great, you know. Uh, And so I think we, you know, we don't we never believed I never believed what we were doing was going to fix education or solve all the problems. Uh, And that was an important piece, too. And in many ways, I look at what we're doing as just a piece of the bridge that hopefully is linking up with other people who are who are doing amazing things in islands. But what we want to do is help district leaders begin to recognize and address those inequities so that they can implement programs we didn't create, you know, other people are working on, but do so with uh, a lens towards equity.
1: I, I think that that is so helpful to hear, especially that oftentimes with the way that we've heard entrepreneurs approach islands that are radical innovations that really fundamentally change society, you have to imagine this totally... Non-existent, implausible, impossible universe, and that if you're working perhaps in an existing system, it's important to know that moving five steps in a certain direction that would be an improvement is is a lot of work, and that it's okay to be motivated that way. That's yeah. what I'm hearing from you. And,
2: and you know, during this pandemic, for example, people are rightfully recognizing that this move to remote and all, this has thrown so many things in the air that it is creating a real opportunity to reimagine school being less place-based. There's all sorts of amazing things. But right after the pandemic hit, if you were to talk to principals and district leaders, they weren't thinking, how do I reimagine school? You know, One of the larger districts in the country we work with said, we have lost contact with over 100,000 students. We have no way of contacting them because they're homeless, because we don't know their parents' information. These are students who rely on us for food and mental health and that is our primary concern. It's not what kind of curriculum you know we teach or, or, or can we even get to these students to help them? Uh, and if you're not empathetic of, of the true challenges that they face, you never get them. You can get a small set who doesn't face those challenges. And if you really think about it, doing that only exacerbates inequity, because if all you're doing is going to the people who don't have the, the broad set of problems your majority faces, and you're just helping them get further, you know, you're just, you're, you're probably making society worse in the process. Uh, That's an exaggeration. I do think, again, islands are important. We need islands to, to show us what's possible.
1: So talk a little bit about that process. You've talked about empathetic listening. You've talked about making sure your, your sample set of potential customer interviews or customer discovery involves a wider set. What does that, what does that look like? Especially if a school system has lost touch with people, how do you find the right people to engage with so that you're building a system that's informed by those who need it the most?
2: Well, again, I think that you, you look at in the case of education, but it could be anything. And you ask yourself, where are the majority of the people I'm trying to impact? And are they in those little things or are they in in our case, they're in these big districts and can, how do I contact those people connect with them and, and, Do so through empathy. Before I started Able, I was just kind of going through people saying, I have nothing to offer you, but I'm looking for information because I don't want to be that person who's coming to you telling you I have all the answers. You have more information than me. You've been doing this longer. Help me understand the system and your challenges. Um, And then over time, I, I began to offer, here's what I think. But even then, I would say, I'm sure I'm wrong. Please help, you know, instead of. You know, part of the schizophrenia maybe of being an entrepreneur today is there's like two pitches you need at all times, um, especially in the early days. One is to your like future employees and investors. And that is the like, it's amazing. And we're doing this big thing and it's all great. And I know all the information. But then the other is like, you're trying to learn from these customers who won't react well to you telling them they have all the information if they're the experts. And so being able to go empathetically to them and say, you know, I'm especially in the case of being new into a sector. Uh, of which I was in this case. If you're, in ex, you know, extremely, I also think, and I, I actually wish I had done more of this earlier. If you are trying to go into a, a sector, you know, really bringing on people early on who understand that sector very, very well, and it's difficult as an entrepreneur because you will, you'll run into this sort of like, well, I want to bring them on, but they don't understand what I'm trying to do, and they're too entrenched in the system, and they, you know. Um, but it doesn't matter. Like they understand it better than you, and if you're not humble enough to recognize that. Uh, you know, your first employees should be someone who understands that new sector or someones and they'll, they may drive you crazy, but it's so important to be able to not only gain respect from the people you're trying to learn from, uh, but to empathize with them. And again, this is, it's very different. Everything I'm saying is almost only applicable to institutions, B2B consumers is a whole different animal where you're just like direct. It doesn't, you know, you just get to the people you can go after early adopters, all that works fine. Um, and there are a lot of opportunities there, but uh, it, it is Institutional change is often difficult unless you go to the institutions you're trying to change.
1: So with that in mind, I want to ask one question about COVID-19 as well, because a, a lot of your insights into the education market through ABLE were about meeting people at a place they understood and then moving them incrementally forward. And we're living at this time when no one understands anything. So yeah. how is the, how, what is ABLE doing and how are, how are you modifying that approach to to keep supporting schools?
2: I mean, in some ways, radically, and in some ways, what we were doing was already applicable in the sense of um, a, a fundamental level. What ABLE does is you know, operational approach to equity. But a big part of that is helping schools uh, develop what are called master schedules that are more equitable and, and drive more excellence in their students. The master schedule is what uh, that process determines what courses are offered, who teaches what, how students are grouped, all of these all of the decisions pretty much that are made outside the classroom that impact the potential, the opportunity and success of the student. Um, It's a, it's a critical function. And under the COVID world that has so insane because normally schools begin in January, maybe March developing these master schedules for the next year. But in March of this year, they were like, Whoa, everything's out. And so suddenly they're in a world of not only having to do in a very short amount of time, what they normally do in six to nine months, but they have to do multiple ones because we don't know, are kids all coming back to school? Are they gonna be hybrid? We're probably gonna switch. And so we need to be able to have an eye on what that is. And we have new constraints, not just uh, the old ones, but how many students is each student in contact with? You know, How do we decide how to group these students uh, uh, together, especially if it's hybrid and some are coming in and some are not. And so uh, our work is sort of in, in two pieces. Uh, one is the reimagining school piece of which there's a lot of interest today because they're recognizing this as an opportunity, and the other is the the sort of equity and operational piece, which is whether you're reimagining or not, you you have to come back in a way that is going to not just maximize the 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 you know the excellence, but also the equity piece of that, and you know, and, and dealing with. But I think this is a, a real opportunity because uh, I said earlier about how parents often drive, parents are rationally making decisions to benefit their kids, and yet that can often have negative benefit, negative consequences, Uh, COVID provides the best excuse for a district leader to say, you know what, I know that we've offered French five for whatever, but like those six kids that had that, we need that teacher to teach English right now and to remediate because we have students who are falling behind. Uh, I also think one of the most dramatic changes we're going to see this year is many, if not most districts are not going to do standardized testing this year, the, the traditional type of standardized testing. And there's so many good and bad directions that can go. You know, a lot of the people who pushed for standardized testing were the people who really cared about equity because they wanted to measure the inequity. That's a very noble reason. But we also know that standardized testing creates perverse and zenism. So there's all these ways in which um, school has an opportunity to rewrite. And what we're trying to do is uh, if one way our, our work has really changed is we're, we've become a bit more consultative heavy because... There's no, there was no way to productize that quickly, the challenges that they're facing. And so we're, we're relying on the fact that we can work more closely with our customers to learn through these challenges and productize them as we go. And we're holding less precious the, the, the like, it has to all be SaaS revenue and we should never, you know, that kind of thing, which is really hard to do as a, a startup. And in many ways, I think that speaks to one of those tensions between social enterprise and enterprise.
1: I think that that's a, a, a great transition into one more clip from your 2018 talk So um, that talks a little bit about values and the tensions with social enterprise.
2: Uh, somebody asked me once, is there any proof that having values of, that are like aspirational help you be successful? And I had to be honest with them and say, there's, not only is there no proof, but there's only counterfactuals there, you know, like look at the most successful com- uh, the companies. They're not the ones that express the, the, the highest values. And so my answer was if they're truly your values, then you'll be willing to fail and maintain them. That's what it, that's what it means to have values. So, what does that mean? Tell us more about that. Uh, it means what I said. I think, I think <laughs> you know, um, I was reflecting on this before this talk, you know, this, this label of social enterprise. I would not be surprised, I'm certainly hopeful that in 10 or 20 years, people look back on this time and they say, what are these social enterprises? And they're confused by it because they can't imagine a world where the norm would be that the vast, vast majority of, of creativity and resources and companies um, and money and all of that were going to these things which weren't social, that, that whose pure goal was, or whose, whose highest goal was increasing shareholder value. And what we expected in 2020 was that a very, very small, in comparison, set of social enterprises and nonprofits or whatever would clean up all the problems created by the vast majority of you know other companies. Um, and I think someday we're going to look back and say that was just a crazy thing. Um, uh, part of the the challenge there is that I think for a long time, and maybe if, if I was alive to, or if I was uh, doing this 50 years ago, I'd think that too. That um, people thought that there was no tension between a uh, uh, profit motive and and doing well. You know, do do well by doing good. And yet it's just getting increasingly hard to explain why under the current system, so many people are being left behind, whether that's students or adults or communities. Um, And we used to say that's just because there wasn't enough, the the market wasn't free enough, but it's just getting harder and harder to justify that. And the existence uh, and the need for social enterprises, if anything shows the fallacy in that the challenge for a social enterprise is that, um, you still need, you still need money. You still need funding. You know, you, you still need these things and you're playing, in a in a world which doesn't have really good sort of language for the, the needs of a social enterprise. Mm-hmm. And so you end up, um, you end up in a strange world in terms of how you balance that tension. The, the tension is real. You know, you, there are times when the decisions that you need to make for rapid growth, for example, may be different than the decisions you would make if your pure intention was, Uh, impact. And, uh, and I think a lot of times entrepreneurs try to ignore that or hide it. Part of it is the cognitive dissonance of raising money. And in that context of like, when you raise money, you have to tell the story about the, the, the the economic opportunity, you know, and, and if you're raising from impact investors, you have to tell both stories, but it's, it's hard to know which one is, is, uh, takes primacy. So there's that cognitive dissonance for a lot of entrepreneurs they just sort of like pretend there's no tension. And I found it helpful to admit there's a tension to admit my company's attention and allow us to hold that tension talk about that tension and know that we're we're not going to be making decisions all one way or another and by not agreeing on the tension that then we really run the risk you know if we truly if i sat here and said there's no tension it's actually more likely that i would end up moving in the direction of pure economics because you know economics drives itself in a lot of ways but by by naming that tension i think there's an opportunity to to do better
1: I want to dive into that a little bit more. I know a lot, of, a lot of the students we work with and people in our audience are relatively familiar with the idea of how do you measure financial performance? But for those who are interested in thinking about going into social enterprise or, or creating not a, an enterprise that wants to do good and, and measure against that in this quantitative world, what, what do impact investors look for um, and how, how should social enterprises be measuring in ways that aren't financial to, to balance that tension a little bit?
2: It's a really great question, and it's not uh, an easily answerable question because finances are easy to measure. Uh, they're They're singular, they're you know we have clear measurements. But when you talk about impact, it's so dependent on what are you trying to impact and who? And a really good example of that is uh, we've worked with a number of organizations in education, and when we've asked about impact measurements, they tend to come and talk about test scores or you know impacting, and that seems obvious, that's what we're trying to do. But here we are on the administrative side where we work with superintendents and, and the impact we're trying to have, first of all, measuring test scores is a very, very lagging indicator of some of those things. And second of all, we have all these proxies we're trying to improve around equity and around, um, and I think we can see that even some of the past measurements around test scores hid some of the inequity. So if your goal is to impact inequity, you can show a school rising test scores, but actually having worse, you know, uh, uh Less equity, um, and so I, I think that the key is not that there's universal measures, but more that you as the founder make some early decisions and adjust them over time about like, what is the impact you're trying to have, and uh, and how are you driving towards that? How are you speaking loudly about that to your investors, to your company, uh, and allowing them to hold you accountable? Now, the most likely people to hold you accountable to that are your employees, and the way that you make sure they do that is by hiring people that really care about the things that you're trying to impact and telling them that that's your goal. And you will, you will tend to hear from them if they, if you start to drift away from that. And I find that like a healthy uh, tension that is difficult as a leader, but uh, a super healthy tension. So, because a lot of, I think as a CEO, that is the hardest thing to balance is you, you have these schizophrenic, like I've got to drive the business. I, I need to drive revenue. I need to raise money. I need to do this. I'm also trying to have impact and, and really understand my customer. Um, and in the case of K-12, I think where this is hyper exaggerated is if you were to ask what is the fastest way to make the most money in K-12, you could find things. You, you could definitely find some various things. But if you were to ask what are the most pressing problems they're facing, those, aren't ne- those are like a, a, a very narrow Venn diagram. And if you just chose the things in the intersection, then you're leaving out so many things that need addressing that clearly... Any kind of social enterprise, like if we are trusting social enterprise to help fix education, it cannot do that unless it has a loose, defi- unless it has a broad definition of financial success. Because there's just too many problems in education that are not going to lead to unicorns. And so, you, you know, if, if we don't accept that as a possibility, then we just don't fund or attempt any of the things that are in the uh, outside of that vendor, that you know, middle of the vent.
1: And I want to put a pin in one thing you said at the end there, which is that um, what I'm hearing from you is that financial success, particularly in technology ventures, is often measured by unicorn status, as opposed to small growth, financial sustainability, which might be more more attainable for a social enterprise. Am I hearing you correctly in that?
2: Yeah, I think that's that. And um, it's interesting because where we get even more schizophrenic is, it's almost like if you're not going to be a unicorn, then the question is, why aren't you a nonprofit? And the bright line that we tend to draw between for and nonprofit to me doesn't make sense. And again, in 50 years from now, we may look back and be like, that was very confusing. And yet, so many people I think lack the imagination to understand the spectrum. And what I mean by that is, you know, oftentimes when we look at nonprofits, we would freak out if a nonprofit attempted to charge a lot of money to achieve sustainability. Often. But if a for-profit was charging money, achieving sustainability, but not growing fast enough, then we're like, well, that's not a real company either. And so there's this huge kind of middle gap of problems that would that um, are best solved by sustainable solutions, but nobody will fund them on the for or nonprofit side for these strange reasons. And and at the fundamental level, and this is what I believe is one of the fundamental problems of our country today, um, is that uh, and I. One of the fundamental problems is that the people who are are control the set of people who decide what gets what problems are funded, and who who get the money to uh, solve those problems and decide what solutions are worth attempting to solve those problems, come from narrow backgrounds and have narrow sets of ideas. And they're very good people. I all the people I've worked with in social enterprise are very good people doing good work that is important, but it's too narrow. And until we have a broader set of constituents who can decide what uh, problems are worth solving and what solutions are worth entertaining, then we're going to bang our head against a lot of problems. We just won't ever solve them because we're thinking too narrowly about it. Uh, And this is one of those examples because a lot of the social enterprise is around this idea that you can do well by doing good. And so we should only kind of invest in unicorns or whatever equivalents in your field. Um, But what about that middle sphere? And if we're really going to solve problems, shouldn't we figure out a way to fund them but it's not clear who would.
1: I, I think that's a, a, fantastic, uh, a fantastic kind of call to our audience, actually, and the students we work with. You've, we thought maybe we would just talk about challenges in education, but really you've identified two big opportunities for us to really reimagine big systems, funding, investing systems, education oh God, systems. Yeah. Uh, I want to turn um, in the time we have left to the audience questions. So um, let's see what people are thinking about. So Why you're looking up,
2: I, I want to reiterate, this is very important as I walk a fine line here. The people funding uh, social enterprises and, and doing them are good people doing good work and solving real problems. We just need a broader set of people. And that is a real problem to solve within in funding spaces. How do we find the space to solve a broader set of problems for a bo- broader set of funders and a broader set of, of entrepreneurs?
1: So first question from the audience. Adam, thanks for being here again. It seems like political affiliation is related to individual preferences for the education system. Can education be agnostic to political affiliation?
2: I mean, that's like asking at the moment, can anything be agnostic to political affiliation at the moment? The goal of education should be to be agnostic of political affiliation. Um, but, you know, we live in a world where we're arguing about Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. and. It makes it very, very complicated, and education, what I will tell you is this, and if you're interested in this, there's a really great book called The Teacher Wars, which describes the history of U.S. public education from 1850 till now, and essentially lays out the fact that, not me, I don't know about all countries, but pretty unique to America, the, our education system has been politicized from the beginning. The very beginning, education gets dragged into political debates. I'll just give you one example. Um teaching is a very low paid profession we we know that right and people have talked about some of the reasons that they should teachers should feel lucky to have such a you know an impactful thing why should they get paid a lot which is ridiculous but if you go back in history one of the reasons was before uh, i think it was world war 1 teaching was almost exclusively women post world war 1 men were coming back from the war it might have been world war 2 and some of them wanted to go into teaching it's a great job but they were freaked out by the low pay and so they began to lobby congress and like why aren't teachers paid more? And the debate about why they shouldn't be paid more went something like this. Um, The majority of teachers are women. Therefore, it can't be a a high-skilled profession because women aren't in high-skilled professions. So if we pay pay more, we're admitting that women can do high-skilled professions. So clearly it's not a high-skilled profession. So in that way, it's like weirdly politicized. Or another good example is you know, we have 11,000 districts in this country, half of which have one school. Like, how did we end up that way? Well, a lot of it is because people wanted local control for the purpose of segregation a long time ago, still happens today. I mean, this is happening, there was just a court case about this in in the Bay Area, you know, Um, and so education has always been politicized. I don't know how to (laughs) fix that. Educating our kids should should be all of our thing. And I think teaching, you know, teaching students about like the most important thing would be not just teaching them the skills they need for uh, you know math and reading and all that, but helping students understand civic duties and uh, along mm-hmm. with social emotional skills. But there's, there's a lot of fear about teaching civic duties. I think the debate about who should vote is alive and well in this country. And it's very closely related to the, the debate about who should be educated.
1: Um, we've got another COVID question. Um, do you think COVID and our accelerated entrance to a digital education system Has created an opportunity for a nationwide master scheduling revamp which is a lot of what able focuses on the master schedule or are schools too preoccupied with other priorities
2: it absolutely creates that opportunity the question is as we come through this will the entrenched system snap back to the way it was because we're so preoccupied or uh have we hit this breaking point where we are going to you know take on this opportunity and I, I do honestly think that um, in this case, leadership matters a lot. Uh, again, the fact that we have 11,000 districts means it's a bit chaotic. It's hard for the good ideas and bad ideas to spread because there's sort of like lots of individuals doing their own thing. Um, but I do think there is an opportunity with with good leadership to to work on a uh, uh, an agenda of updating school. Obviously, that's just so difficult in this country because of the sort of the political aspect, the drive towards local control, but yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity and, and the opportunity is massive. I mean, um, the, you know, the things that we're excited about are place-based learning. Like, why is it all in your school? You know, why are students grouped by grade level all the time? You know, why are students in these individual classes where the content is no relationship to each other? And there's, all, why aren't students learning civic skills or social emotional skills? And shouldn't they be doing that in practical applied ways? And, and we see examples all over the country of, of, of high schools doing amazing internships and externships and all, you know, like amazing stuff. Um, but it's all kind of islands. And it's, you know, the way we have this opportunity now to, to see that hit mainstream. Uh, but I think it will take some, some leadership to get there.
1: A follow-up is able strategizing a return to normal eventually two to three years down the road. I hope, I hope it's sooner than that. Uh, <laughs> or are you completely pivoting and leaning into virtual only learning?
2: Oh no. I mean, it, I'm not a believer in virtual learning, for one. I I mean, I think that I don't think any of our schools are. I don't think teachers are. We have not figured that out yet. And it's not clear that that would be best even if we did. I mean, again, schools are not just about educating students. And if the goal was, it's not like you put a kid in front of a computer and they just like learn. Schools are about socialization and they're about helping, allowing their parents to go to work and about safety and about all these other things. And so I think everybody, including Abel, wants kids to go back to school. Uh, safely, and obviously, that's a political issue as to what that means. Um, so, what we're betting on is going back to kids back in school. However, it may not look exactly like it does today. Like, for example, um, in a lot of small schools, they can't offer all the content and curriculum that they might want to. So, yes, maybe they're going to leverage digital more to augment what they can do in person. That's great, you know, and 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 how that gets scheduled and how students are grouped is very different in that world than when you have a class size of, of 25 or 30. Um, but I think kids are going back. I hope kids are going back to school. We will figure that out. And uh, it, it will look different. There will be more opp- opportunities because of digital. I also think, you know, in the same way that uh, zoom is working pretty well right now, but you know, in, if we were stuck this way for five or 10 years, again, we will look back at how we're the, the communicating and say it's insane, you know, and digital learning, is gonna go through a revolution now because of the necessity of it. And what we've seen in the last 10 years, 12, 20 years has been great, um, but just leaves so much to be desired. And I think, again, the, the standardized testing and that sort of going away in the next year is gonna create a, one of the most massive opportunities because the way that schools worked before was kids went into a black hole called the classroom and then we tested them at the end. And if they didn't learn, then we either believed it was the teacher's fault or the student's fault. You know what I mean? But it was like schizophrenic, but we didn't know what was happening. And it was easy to, and and frankly, we, we, the decision about whether to blame the student or the teacher was sort of like politically motivated, you know, uh, and sometimes racially motivated sometimes. And so moving to a world where we're knowing in real time, whether students are learning and therefore we can quickly intervene to understand, you know, does the teacher need help? Does the student need help? That's going to be really positive. That can be done in person and digitally, but digital accelerates our ability to do that. That, that could be potentially very revolutionary, uh, and I certainly hope it's accelerated, but co- almost couldn't be done in a world that was so reliant on summative testing.
1: Um, a question that uh, shifts gears a little bit from education to you personally. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about your founder's journey to Yammer, um, what you learned through your journey and the insights you took to ABLE, but I'd especially like to focus on your journey because I also know you have you have an unlikely path to, to, to go into education with your own experiences in high school.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess the quick version and feel free to <laughs> follow up, but uh, dropped out of high school, um, with decent grades. I love to learn and, and, um, uh, I, I didn't feel like the school was a institution for educating me at the time. And, and, uh, had a guidance counselor tell me I should drop out and go to college and went to college for a year. But, uh, that year started a company with a, a really good friend of mine, which was a web development company in 94, 95, when we started my brother as well, and, um, ran it for six years, Then com crash happened went out of business and, uh, and then I, I became a little bit disillusioned with startups at that point. And, uh, but a couple of years later, ended up at um, another startup called Shopzilla, uh, running web engineering there, and then was uh, uh, poached by uh, uh, David Sachs over at Genie, which was a social network of families and was there for a year before he had the idea for Yammer and asked if I would lead engineering. And uh, it seemed like a good idea. And I, I accepted that idea. And then that was a really phenomenal journey. I mean, Yammer really an incredible experience in terms of the, the company and, and uh, the, the passion of both of our customers and our employees and, and just learned a tremendous amount, I think about institutional change and about um, running an organization. Uh, and then after I left, I, I frankly personally felt so fortunate about the, the outcome and the, the privilege that, that had led me to that, that uh, I felt I wanted to give back both because it gives me joy, but also I felt responsible. And so Began to look at US education um, and originally was not going to start a company uh, for the reasons that I kind of said earlier. Like I didn't know about US education, Um, but it was in the process of, of joining a nonprofit called Transcend, which actually does look at how do we reinvent education. And through that process, discovered master scheduling, discovered these operational challenges, discovered a lot of the inequity created by it, thought that there was a business opportunity that was a fundable business opportunity and uh, created able as a result so it is a bit unlikely you know i uh, and then most recently i i stepped down as ceo actually a couple months ago and uh, a new ceo howard bell took over who's doing a really incredible job and i think is is better suited for the state of the company the stage of the company today
1: um want to switch now to social enterprises uh, great question here from the audience how might you entice people to start or join a social enterprise you said you need a broader pool. How would you sell the field industry as an entrepreneur opportunity to young hopefuls? Of which I think there are many in our audience.
2: It's a really good question. Um, it's challenging. you know. I think, that it, I think one of the biggest challenges, frankly, I mean, it depends on the type of social enterprise, but a challenge that I know I faced when I started ABLE was um, if you're dealing with an environment of people who are more on the enterprise of social enterprise, meaning they don't want to work at a bad company. They want to do something good, but they're looking for a return. Then you have to speak that language to them. But if what you're doing isn't, uh, you know, oftentimes I found like in Silicon Valley, for example, here I am working in us education, trying to create a successful enterprise, which is also having an impact talking about that impact. And I was competing for talent with Uber who was claiming to be a social enterprise in a lot of ways. Right. And yet they could pay twice as much, you know, So I think part of it is just like knowing the who, finding the people for whom this really is important to them and are, and they're willing to make sacrifices for it because a social enterprise requires sacrifice. Uh, And I think recognizing that upfront and building that into the system and finding people who are passionate about it uh, is key. How you find them, it depends on the problem you're trying to solve, but you find them within that problem space uh, to solve that problem. And I feel like we did a a good job at ABLE and that the people at ABLE are passionate about equity or passionate about education provide really positive pressure to maintain our values um, and and are just like, are willing to sacrifice, I think, for that, but that's a different set of people than, I don't know, go to work for other companies, you know?
1: Um, I wanna save the, the last question for myself um, to end on a little bit of a, of a high optimistic note, which is, you know, we've spent a lot of the last hour talking about really big, deeply disturbing problems in our society that have been around for decades, if not centuries. And I'd love for you to leave myself and our audience with a sense of why we should be hopeful and optimistic and stay motivated.
2: Yeah, it is a great question. I mean, my optimism and hope is almost exclusively and unfairly pinned on a younger generation and it's not that i'm ex- that the expectation is that they solve the problems but i think they're inspiring us to be creative in ways that are are novel and new and are forcing action among people in my generation and the next generation um you know i i'm a gen xer and i'm a proud gen xer and uh we are not known for being politically active or organized or any of those things um and yet when watching these protests, in a lot of cases, or watching the outcry and watching the creativity, which is what I'm seeing in a younger generation, is people saying, "Why does why do things have to be this way? Are, are there other ways to solve these problems? Can't we be more creative?" Um, you know, like here's just a classic example that I, I love. You know, when I think about the problems in education, I, I realized recently that it's very similar to the problems we see in policing which is to say, we're just asking too much of it. You know, we we often, like a school is supposed to fix its community. It can't do that. Um, and, and it requires creativity to understand and to be willing and bold enough to say, you know what, this is a broad set of interconnected problems and we need to work together to solve all of them simultaneously. Um, and I think that I'm seeing that happen in the younger generations. I hope that students watching this and I, I hope that they will not only take efforts to, to try new and novel things, but that they'll continue to inspire my generation, other generation to put pressure on in the same way that I feel like employees put pressure on me to uh, withhold their values. There's a way in which a younger generation, I mean, you look at like Greta Thornberg, is that her name? Um, the pre- like, the pressure she is putting on adults to say like, I am a child. I am not going to solve these problems, but you were supposed to. Uh, and I think those kind of things matter, especially in mass. Uh, I think that that any large group of people has a huge influence. Uh, And and I'm excited to see and optimistic about a younger generation putting that pressure on the rest of us.
0: The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.Stanford.edu.